This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. So I want to first thank CIS for having us here and having this conversation. I'm really excited to talk to you about all things feminist and all things discourse. Um, and thank you all for coming. I came out here from Oakland, so I feel like that's quite a truck for yeah. those of you who know the Bay. Um, but thank you for joining us today for this conversation. Thank you so much. I'm delighted. <laughs> delighted is a good word. We should start there. Um, so Amanda, Amanda, let's get started with how you came to write the book. Yeah. Um, what was it that inspired you? What was your process and what was your trajectory? Yeah, so I was a linguistics major in college and a creative writing minor, um, two disciplines that I expected to be rather useless in my adult life. Um, there was like a summer when I was 20 when I started telling people I wanted to grow up to be a pop linguist. And people looked at me and they were like, that's cute, sweetie. <laughs> like, that's not a job. Um, and I thought, fair enough. No, that's not. Um, and so I pursued this career in digital media on the side all the while wanting desperately to write a book of nonfiction. Um, and I was, you know, I had these side hustles, as so many of us do, um, one of which was creating content about gender, language, and pop culture in video format um, for this media platform that used to exist called Wifey TV, which was uh, founded by Jill Soloway, the creator of the show Transparent. And so I would create these very low production value little videos in my room um, where I would comment on some current event um, from a language and gender perspective. And when I finally got on the phone with a literary agent and word vomited everything that they would possibly want to know or that could possibly lead to a book deal, um, to my delight, the language and gender stuff seemed the most intriguing. And I was shocked and thrilled by that because finally I was going to get the chance to write about it. And um, and yeah, I used, I used my degree. It's stunning. <laughs> That's awesome. From someone who's a PhD in ethnic studies and gender studies. Right, right, right. Yeah, using your degree is a thing. It's oh, a whole thing. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a marvel. <laughs> people ask you all the time what exactly you do and could do. Um, and this is such a really interesting way of thinking about something like discourse and power. Um, I'm curious about your process. Who'd you talk to? What'd you do? And how'd you do it? Yeah. Um, so my whole my whole crusade was to bring this kind of dusty niche academic field that is sociolinguist sociolinguistics um, down from its academic throne and uh, bring it to the people. Because whenever I would talk about what I was learning in my sociolinguistics classes at a bar or dinner party. Um, as you do, talk about sociolinguistics at, at the bar. bar. I do. I do. Sometimes I look up and everyone's gone. But. Um, <laughs> No, but I, I, I found that when I would bring up some of these ideas, um, people were really transfixed by them because we're all curious about why we talk the way we do. Um, and I had some information about that and I was presenting it in kind of a fun way. Um, and that's what I was doing in those videos too. And so I had this you know, sort of nerdy scholarly background and interest. And um, at the same time, I was writing for the internet. And so I, I wanted to combine the two. And that's why some of the chapters have these clickbaity title formats like Chapter one is called Slutty Skank Hoes and Nasty Dykes, a comprehensive list of gendered insults I hate but also kind of love, question mark. Um, so someone once called my chapter titles aggressively non-academic <laughs> because I, I don't know, I, I, these, these two worlds, that of the, the internet-y fun pop culture world and the academic scholarly sociolinguistics world um, were both a very natural part of my identity. So I wanted to combine them. Um, but I couldn't do that without having a very foundational uh, research, a, a good research foundation. And so my blessed professor of my sex, gender and language class that I took at NYU um, 
truly, I couldn't have done this without her. She snail mailed me a thumb drive containing about a thousand scholarly articles painstakingly photocopied and uploaded and all that um, so that I could reference them. And so there That's was a good mentor. Oh, my God. She's incre <laughs> incredible. And I, I quote her throughout the book, adore her. Um, but there was a lot of that. It was um, it was a lot of combining what I had read um, in all of those pieces and sort of filtering them through my non-PhD trained brain, very poorly decorated I am. Um, <laughs> only the BA <laughs> to speak for, um, or to speak of. But uh, yeah, so I would, I would choose the most exciting bits or the ones that I thought would be the most interesting and the most appealing to a general audience. Um, and I tried to combine them and, and put them into these different chapters in a way that was packaged in a, in a fun and digestible way. Um, and I, I combined them with like a, a bit of my own crude research. Um, I conducted like 15 of my own original interviews with linguists. Um, and so it was combining all of those different things and making it fun. And so that was sort of the, the process. So who's your book for? Like I'm hearing that you did a lot of translating work, a lot of bridge building work. Yeah. Who do you imagine, other than the wonderful people in this room, sure. reading this book? I mean, I've been delighted to find that I'm going to overuse that word because you pointed it out now. I, it's like a bug in my brain. It's just here. It's yeah, living yeah. right here. It's stuck in my mind now like a song. Um, but yeah, I mean, originally, I guess when I was talking about the market while shopping the book around to publishers, um, I envisioned it to be for like, millennial progressive folks. Um, but I've found that, you know, my, my parents, colleagues, these sort of like serious male scientists around the country um, have have enjoyed it as well. Um, and I think, you know, different people will will take away different things from it. I think, um, you know, I've I've been watching my Goodreads reviews like a hawk and I'm read your reviews. I, oh, yeah, I definitely do. Oh, I know that the prevailing wisdom is that you shouldn't. But I do obsessively um, and I'm, I'm happy with a lot of it. I'm I'm totally shook and pleased <laughs> to find that people are enjoying it. But um, I do think that uh, people from different backgrounds take different things from it. Um, I find that uh, women my age feel really empowered by it. But then um, I have some Goodreads reviews from these like middle-aged dudes who, um, who really, uh, who are taking me seriously because there are so many empirical studies in it and they're kind of like this airtight logic. And I was, um, I was really focused on, on making sure that my points were communicated with this empirical evidence. Um, and so I find that, you know, no matter what angle you're coming at the material from, um, different people have, it's, it's resonated with them in some way. Um, so that's cool. Yeah, I mean, I find that one of the most interesting things about your book is the research that you pull from, right? Um, it's not, when we look at something like a nonfiction book, I tend to look at it really comprehensively. It's about, you know, the author and where they're from and what they do, um, but also the kind of field that they're situating themselves in, right? Um, and so you are drawing from sociolinguistics, you're drawing from gender studies. What do you think are your kind of reference points? Um, I mean, it's precisely those two things. The So my linguistics major obviously touched on a lot of different subfields. There were the syntax and semantics classes, and there were the phonetics and phonology classes, but the one class that really like, lit my fire and made me more excited than any of them was the sex, gender, and language class. So I was really, I my like training in feminism and gender studies came from the language angle. I, I wasn't a gender studies major, um, but linguistics was, was my entry point, and um, I'm a wordy person, and I love language, and um, it's how I make sense of the world in a lot of ways, um, and so uh, it makes sense to me that it would have been my entry point in coming to understand um, my own gender, gender at large, feminism, social equality, social justice, all of these things. Um, language was really the entry point for me, and um, that was it. That, that's how this book came to be because there are there's there's so much great feminist literature happening right now. Um, but I was so jazzed that um, my publisher was was willing to let me take a crack at it from the nerdy language angle, which is what enchanted me so much. Yeah, let's talk about the nerdy language angle for a yeah. sec um, and how it fits into this moment. You know, I am an organizer. I'm a 
scholar of social protest movements. And since about 2014, we're seeing a really big sea change, right? Um, we see folks marching, protesting things like police brutality. And I personally am really interested in when someone chains them, chains themselves to a pipeline, um, when they are blockading a freeway, uh, when they are, you know, up against a line of police and riot gear. Um, I'm curious about where you find your work in this moment. Yeah. So there is this incredible linguist at the um, at UC Santa Barbara named Lal Zimmon, who I would call late at night to have conversations with um, for this book. I owe so much to him, um, who's a scholar of of language use in trans communities and things like that, but a scholar of, of so many different disciplines under the general umbrella of language and gender. And um, one of the most profound things that he he said to me, and he would really boil it down, like sociolinguistics for dummies, and I really appreciated that. Um, but one thing that he said was, it's really important for that people understand that language does matter in the way that other more material forms of freedom and oppression do, like chaining yourself to a... Uh, what a pipeline um, and uh, holding up a, a, a picket sign. I mean, that is language um, or, you know, putting putting your body at risk um, language and 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 all of those forms of freedom and oppression are, are really closely connected. And um, it can be it can be really insidious because we have this axiom that sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can never hurt you. Um, and that's and that's so false. Um, so many people have been damaged in, a, in an extremely material way because of language. Something that comes to mind was um, this this court case 20 or so years ago where um, this uh, this couple um, was, was greatly affected by a dictionary definition when the woman who is trans's husband died um, and she was denied a right to inherit his estate because the dictionary definition at the time um, basically like devalued her entire gender identity, found them in a what was then illegal same-sex marriage and took away all of these resources that she was entitled to. I think that's really interesting because uh, so so few of us, because language is so, it comes so second nature to us. We literally start experimenting with vowel sounds when we're six weeks out of the womb. We learn it so naturally that we come to take a lot of it for granted. And um, one of those things is dictionary definitions. You know, we see grammar guides and dictionaries as these omniscient authorities that have always been there, like gravity or the sun, but really they're lexicographers and grammarians are no arbiters of truth and language change and social change really happens from the bottom up. This incredible feminist linguist who's a hero of mine, who I reference a lot in the book, Deborah Cameron, said once that the struggle for meaning is a grassroots campaign. Um, and so that dictionary definition that really negatively affected this woman's life um, was based on general use. Dictionary definitions at any given moment are based on what the general public or the general speakers of that language at the time come to understand that word to mean. And so our culture ideologically was not yet at a place during that time where we felt the need to recognize and validate trans identity. And so it was invalidated based on this dictionary definition. Um, one of my favorite fun facts is that the word lesbian was not entered into the Oxford English Dictionary until 1976. <laughs> um, and oh my God, in the example sentence, was amazing that they included. It was something like, it was some example sentence that a poet had once uttered that said, um, women shall not write poetry unless they're invalids or lesbians or something. <laughs> so that's not relevant, but it's fun. Um, you should all know that we do write the best poetry. That's <laughs> yeah. real. Oh yeah. That's so absolutely true. real. That is, that is an empirical fact, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would love to conduct a study on that. There are numbers to support that, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, so, um, Language, one, one of the most important points that I wish to make in the book and in my, my daily life is that, um, you know, people, people tend to get all up in arms about censorship and political correctness and things. And um, in casual daily general conversation, you, you really can't force anyone to say anything they don't want to say. We are perfectly at liberty in this country and in this culture to say whatever we like. But when people complain about political correctness, I think... They're not, they're not mourning their inability to speak freely. What they're mourning is their, 
the, the freedom to think that their language is separate from their politics. Our language does reveal our politics and our ethics and our belief systems to some extent, and it propagates those belief systems to other, you know, throughout the culture. And um, so you cannot force someone to say something or use language in a particular way, force them to use uh, gender inclusive pronouns, force them not to throw on the word slut willy nilly like they could in the good old, good old days, et cetera, and hope that their ideology will follow. It has to happen the other way around. Um, and that's that's so important um, to, to understand and to take home at the same time you know, when we're talking about movements toward a, a more socially equal society, um, while forcing someone to use language that they don't politically or ethically align with, may it may be challenging to affect their ideologies. Um, if you encourage them to use more gender-inclusive language, it could very well affect the speakers that are around them, the next generation of people um, growing up and hearing more gender-inclusive language. It could um, very well help them and help create um, a more socially equal culture for for the young people for the next generation of folks um, and the and the other point that I want to drive home is that you know so many of us who are already ideologically aligned with these inclusive and progressive values it's important to understand when we're unconsciously using language that's not reflecting those ideologies um, it's something as simple as you know, saying you guys as a second person plural pronoun. That's something that I'm asked about so much um, because people are really attached to that second person plural in part because it fulfills a tricky lexical gap in the English language where we lack a second person plural pronoun, um, which by the way, you used to be our second person plural, thou was our singular. And one of my favorite arguments when people say that singular they is bastardizing the English language is to say that, well, we've seen a plural meaning extend to a singular use before with you. Um, and that shuts them right on up. Um, <laughs> at least for a second to like come up with something else annoying. And then I have to whip out another, you know, bullet and then they shut up again. Um, we just carry on copies of your books so you can throw them at people. I know, <laughs> yes. I'm just like, read this. Um, <laughs> you have a problem? Read. Read my book. Um, but yeah, that would be terribly annoying. Um, I would do that. But Pocket-sized versions yeah. are oh, the rage. Oh, how cute. Yes. Yes. A little pocket-sized yellow ray of sunshine to just undress them with empirical linguistics. Curl out mansplainers. <laughs> yes, exactly. Ah, a delightful portmanteau. But anyway, um, oh Lord. You guys. You guys. We're oh, you yes. Guys. People are so attached to you guys and they make the argument that for them it's evolved to be gender neutral um but when you step back and realize that there's no chance that you gals would ever learn the same level of lexical love and there's you guys really speaks to this larger idea of male defaultness and how men in language and in culture enjoy the default status um they're at once uh, the protagonists of our culture and invisible and get away with a lot. Um, and so you guys really isn't gender neutral and um, it's it's continuing to perpetuate that idea of male defaultness. It's not doing it in a particularly abusive way, um, but that's kind of what makes it more insidious. Um, and there are so many examples of that. So I really encourage people to, you know, Again, you can force anyone to say a thing if you're deeply attached to you guys. I, I mean, I'm I'm not in favor of political correctness. I lab I labeled this book word slut. That's going to offend people. I acknowledge that. Um, and yet, I I want people to to use language. Um, I, I guess that's my whole mission is to get people to to be conscious about it and make sure that their language does reflect their politics because it really really does matter in a material way. Yeah, I think one of the really cool things about your book was that you go really slowly with certain words, right? Um, it's fun because of the words that you go slowly with, right? There's a lot of genitalia. Um, and in preparation for this talk, I re-listened to My Vag by Aquafina. Word. Uh, it's a great song. I encourage you all to give it a good listen. Um I really do. It's a great song. Uh, but one of the things that you kind of enter into when you listen to the song is how strange it is to hear a, what we consider a body part that's tied to womanhood in an empowering way. Totally. Right. Um, you don't always hear a vagina portrayed as the same the same way as you would a penis right. um, just in the world, right? Who do we call a dick? 
we never call anyone a vag. <laughs> yeah. It would mean a completely different thing. We call thing. people a pussy, but that means something right. totally different. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, dick is kind of an outlier because um, when we're talking about gendered insults, um, dick is also like a little bit lighter in, in connotation than something like cunt, for example. This is one of my favorite things about sociolinguistics is that you can very dispassionately get away with saying things like bitch, cunt, etc. for the purpose of the... Of of the work, of the studies. Um, it's just an excuse for me to curse. That's why I pursued this. Um, but that's that's partially true. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that is interesting. I was actually just thinking on the car ride over here in my Uber that um, like, why are we so much more comfortable with, you know, I've had, I've had it, like when I express um, delight for something. I've heard it said about me that I have a lady boner for such and such a thing. Like I used to do archery a little bit and someone once told me I had a lady boner for J-Law, Jennifer Lawrence. And um, I, uh, for the folks at home, for the podcast listeners, that is Jennifer Lawrence um, and for you all. Uh, but yeah, I was just like, you would never ever hear like you have you're you're getting man wet for Jennifer right. Lawrence. It's the same. It's like, right? Like if the word man wet, <laughs> that that strikes us as so absurd and so gross. But it it really speaks to that idea of male defaultness and us feeling more comfortable with um, words that reference maleness, male sexuality than we do words that reference female sexuality. Um, my favorite fun fact to reference there is that uh, Shonda Rhimes, um, who is the showrunner of the show Grey's Anatomy, once uh, underwent the the folks at Broadcast Standards um, censoring the word vagina, a medical term, um, out of an episode so that it could only be uttered twice, but penis was thrown around willy-nilly. Is that a phallic word? <laughs> Willy Probably Willie. Willy. Willie's got to be a phallic word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's everywhere. Um, but anyway, and um, actually, she she is responsible for popularizing the word vajayjay, which uh, a lot of people have come to embrace because it's so cute sounding, like baby language. It's friendly. Vajayjay is a friendly word. It may, but yeah. how depressing that we have to make we have to make the vagina friendly and cutesy sounding like baby language, like goo goo, gaga, vajayjay, um, for it to be palatable, you know? Um, but back to the to the gendered insults point um, about dick and pussy and whatnot, is that uh, one of the most fascinating things that I found while writing this book, um, and it's why the first chapter is about gendered insults, is the idea that like, Every single word that the English language has ever offered to reference women, girls, or femininity has at some point during its lifespan devolved into some kind of insult, more often than not a sexual slur. Um, pussy is one of them. There, there are some parallel, there are some like pairs of masculine and feminine words that show that female words tend to go on this downward trajectory while male terms don't. In fact, they more often than not go the other way and they ameliorate. That's the process in sociolinguistics when a word that starts out with a neutral or negative meaning takes on a more positive meaning. The opposite is pejoration and that's what we see with a lot of uh, terms referencing femininity. Um, pussy is one of them. Um, pussy was was not an insult at the beginning of that word's lifespan, um, but devolved to to mean one. Um, a similar word that's a little bit less vulgar would be would be sissy. Um, the analog the male analog to that is buddy. Both of these words, buddy and sissy, started out as synonyms for brother and sister, but over the the decades, buddy ameliorated to come to mean uh, a word for a comrade or a buddy while sissy went the other way to come to mean a man who, God forbid, reminds you of a woman. <laughs> um, and that's something that we see, you know, so many gendered insults for men ultimately reference femininity, pussy, sissy, even the word what like, dude, don't be such a woman is, is an insult for men. Um, so... So That's upsetting. <laughs> I do this exercise at the beginning of every semester when I teach gender studies. And I have, it's a really great warm up. Um, if anyone is curious about an icebreaker, I highly encourage you to walk into a room of 19 year olds and say, tell me your favorite fighting words that you would hear at a bar. Oh, I love that. Right? So you walk into a bar um, and someone yells something at another man and it's two dudes. And this is enough for someone to break a beer bottle and say, let's go. I love this. And 
it's a litany of it's a litany of like pussy cunt motherfucker um, yeah. which is homophobic you know or wait no sorry Mo- well okay motherfucker let me think about this really quick <laughs> give us the etymology of cocksucker is homophobic motherfucker is just gross <laughs> fair totally fair um <laughs> But you get all of these insults, and then I ask them to step it out by who it's offensive to, right? So let's say – or who you're offending. So let's say you're offending another straight cis dude. That's really easy. That's like all of them, they all have to do with womanhood or femininity in some way, shape, or form. Bitch is – like you're a little bitch is like really common. Yeah. what happens when it's a gay man? Also really easy. What happens when it's a cis straight woman? Really easy. The big gap is a lesbian. Word. That's the thing that tends to confuse every student <laughs> and no one can ever get past dyke. Yeah. It's like this halting. And they're even scared to say it sometimes. Right. I mean, I'm in the room, so that might be it. Makes um, sense. But well, I'm curious about that kind of linguistic gap. And yeah. I think – you do a really great job of talking about how women push language forward, how language is structured against women. I'm curious what happens when you add something like sexual orientation. For sure. I think the lack of insults we have for lesbian identities in particular has very much to do with like the lack of lesbian visibility in a lot of like public life and media. Um, There's a chapter in the book called time to make this book just a little bit gayer where I investigate queer speech and um, the origins of the gay male voice stereotype that so many of us recognize and why there's no lesbian analog and um, there are complicated reasons for this but essentially like we don't recognize um, a lesbian equivalent for the gay male voice for like two main reasons one um, it's just been historically harder for lesbians to seek community because um, they've been hidden from view they have historically it's historically been an identity that's not been even believed to be real um it wasn't even a word in the dictionary until the 1970s um women historically have just been more dependent on husbands and fathers and things and so they just weren't like physically able to seek community and so even though they there were there were def, there was definitely language that represented a lesbian community and lesbian identity it just wasn't being documented or heard as much by sociolinguistic sociolinguists who finally decided to look into this sort of thing around the 1960s and 70s um the other reason is that it is just so much more obvious when a man whether it's with his language his dress um his performance in any way adopts feminine qualities than when a woman goes the other way. Because for for men to adopt any kind of linguistic feature, fashion feature, anything at all that represents or that reflects an you know our ideas of femininity is a step down in power. It's like relinquishing some of the default power that they already have as a man in our culture. So like homophobia, ultimately is very much like misogyny. It's like, it's so, it's such a, a, so egregious a violation of your power as a man to do something that seems like a woman. It's, you know, when, when a, when a woman sounds like a man, we just don't notice it because it's not that same relinquishing of power. It's why it's so much more obvious when a man leaves the house wearing nail polish than it is when a woman leaves the house with a short haircut. Um, It's just like, it's it's um it, it doesn't have the same effect because um a woman you know wearing pants and a man wearing a skirt they're j- it's just like not equal um because of the power structure in our culture and in our language so i think like the lack of insults that we have i mean i'm spitballing i've never been asked this question before but i think the lack of insults that we have for lesbian identity are in part because you know, the stereotype of a lesbian is that she's more masculine, which is like less egregious a cultural offense than for a man to seem like a woman. And also just because there's overall like less lesbian visibility in mainstream culture, perhaps. I think it's a really interesting question. Um, And I was curious about that, those, those paragraphs of your book in part because there is 
I would argue there is a lesbian lexicon. Um, totally. I, I mean, it's Pride Month. Welcome to Pride Month. It's oh the my month God. Did where you know I work so much. There's a series of books called The Lesbian Lexicon. Yeah. yeah. Um, there, there totally exists lesbian slang. I'm familiar with it. Um, I delight in it. Um, but it's been overall less reported um, because of yeah, multiple different reasons, one of which is that a lot of the people conducting studies about slang um, didn't have access to like all female spaces. A lot of the um, a lot of slang develops in what's called like total institutions like prisons and summer camps and boarding schools and things like that. And um, a lot of like male sociolinguists who are conducting these studies like didn't physically have access to those spaces. Um, and also, again, just like a lot of them didn't feel like the lesbian lexicon was worth looking into because they didn't think that it existed. Um, But it totally does. Sorry, continue. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think your latter point is where the rubber meets the road, right? I think when you look at a community of people who are completely disinvested from cis men, what happens to that community? And I think the absence of scholarship, the absence of time spent, which we know is a really big bias, that the absence of time spent with a subject, with a person, with a thought um, shared by a certain body is an example of systemic oppression. Exactly. Right? Um, That when we see those oversights, like when there's a, a gap in the research, it's the vast majority of the time because that community is multiply marginalized. Um, I'm writing a report right now on the state of intersect activism in the global south, and every report I read says, we need to do research on intersects of people. And so every time I see that, I think, well, there's a really big reason. It's because we've marginalized this group, Um, we're not spending time with this group of folks, and that probably means some really big disparities. I think in terms of this research, I'm so curious because as a part of the community, there's like a thriving vocabulary. There is absolutely a queer female signed at birth affect. Um, And I would argue also that the presentation questions are a little bit different, right? When I wear an outfit like this and I go to a bar, folks ask me about my partner and they assume my partner is not a man. When I wear a tight dress and go to a bar, people think, you know, cis straight men will think fair game. And so Word. there's a lot There's a lot actually there. Um, and I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are when it comes to what it'll take in part to do a study on specifically queer sociolinguistics. Yeah. There's so much on ballroom culture. Um, you touch on that in the book. You you talk a lot about gay affect um, from cis gay men. I'm yeah. I'm yeah. curious what you think yeah, yeah. that front. So will look like. like just how um, language change comes exactly simultaneously with cultural change. So does the attention paid to certain sociolinguistic fields. So like in the second wave feminist during the second wave feminist movement and in the 70s, um, all of a sudden anybody who is anybody in sociolinguistics wanted to study gender and language. Um, But then some of the excitement about those social movements dissipated and um, there wasn't as much funding or attention paid to the topic at large in the 80s and 90s, although there were some marginalized people doing incredible work, like Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality in 1989 while no one else was paying attention. Um, But in, you know, a, a lot of people didn't learn the word intersectionality, um, at least, you know, people who weren't spending time, a lot of time on college campuses until like the last 10 years, because the last 10 years are when these um, this attention to the spectrums of sexuality and gender are coming to the cultural forefronts again. And so I think, you know, I talked to so many I I. I was mostly interested in talking to sociolinguists who come at the subject matter from an intersectional point of view for this book. Um, Lal Zimin like specifically studies language of trans and queer communities. And he told me that in, in the early 2000s when he was first pursuing a PhD, nobody, wa- nobody, people thought that that subject matter was too niche. Like literally his professors would not let him pursue that as his thesis. Um, so the culture had to get to a certain place that was hospitable to these, um, to these fields of study. Um, the sociolinguistics as a field 
is relatively very new. It's only been paid attention to for the past like 40 years or so. So, you know, obviously we've come a long way. The like founding parent of gender and language is often thought to be this woman named Robin Lakoff, who wrote this book in 1975 called Language in Women's Place. And she was kind of she was important because she was the first to um, suggest in in a, you know, fairly valid for the time way that um, language and gender are connected and you can make um, in people tend to make or draw conclusions about who a person is based on their language, et cetera. But a lot of the conclusions that she drew about how women talk, et cetera, were ended up being empirically false. Um, so we've come a long way since the time of Robin Lakoff, but we can we can we need like our culture needs to continue on this path toward inclusivity at large for the the research to to follow and help us get there. Like it'll happen simultaneously. Um, but yeah, there are like few but important people like doing um, work in these fields and they're fascinating and I hope it continues, of course. With any social change comes pushback that's sometimes even louder than the progress. But um, with any help, we'll continue on this trajectory of like two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, one step back sort of thing. And incrementally, um, the research and the culture will evolve. So let's talk about those areas. Um, what are your battleground? What do you think is the battleground? What are some battleground words or places where you see some of the progress, these three steps forward, one step back yeah. places? I mean, gender neutral pronouns are a big one. Um, but I think, I mean, everybody in this room, like San Francisco is a culture that has fully embraced uh, gender neutral singular they, um, largely speaking. But I've found um, as I've gone out in the world and talked about this book that and I knew that this existed, that there is so much pushback against singular they um, because people in this culture are extremely attached to grammar and um, think that singular they is a massacring of the English language, um, not really understanding the, the background behind it and that grammar is incredibly fluid and that institutions as legitimate as the AP Stylebook, Facebook, and the government of Canada all recognize um, singular they as opposed to generic he as a valid grammatical form. We've all used it our entire lives without even realizing it when we say something like somebody left their copy of word slut under their chair how dare you um <laughs> uh and um you know there's that example of this has happened in the english language before thou was a plural or that was a singular meaning that we all decided was cumbersome and got rid of generic he was a grammatical form that was based on a rule that exists in latin um so many just arbitrarily the gr the grammarians decided that that would be the rule so many of our languages most confusing grammar rules are based on some rule that exists in latin like when to use you and me versus you and i Regular English speakers, even the most educated among us, fuck that up all the time. It's because of Latin. Screw you, Latin. Um, but uh, I don't mean it. Um, but uh, we yeah. can edit that out. That's okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. She didn't mean that. She I don't Latin. mean it. Latin, forgive me. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, oh, we have so much to thank from Latin. the Italian language. I mean, so much to thank. Thank you, Latin. Um, but yeah, so a lot of these grammatical rules were kind of chosen arbitrarily by these like stuffy white cis male grammarians in like the 1800s and 1900s and um but people adhere really committedly to grammar because um well we all learn it in school and rules make us feel safe um but grammar is particularly important to us because it's connected to the american dream itself it's the idea that if you want to be a ceo you have to sound like one and if you don't want to sound like a ceo or be a ceo well as an american that's a moral failing on your part because we should all according to capitalism want to be ceos um and so when people make that claim that it's a massacring of the english language they're really revealing um, their adherence to this like American value of of prestigious grammar. Um, before the fall of feudalism, there was no such thing as proper grammar because there was no such thing as social mobility. But we value social mobility so much in this culture, and that's why people adhere so much to grammar. People all across the political spectrum. I mean, like one of the first forms of ammunition that people on the progressive left use when confronting bi bigots is um, 
your grammar wasn't correct. Um, people equate grammar with morality on all sides of the political spectrum. But something that that linguist uh, Deborah Cameron that I love so much said once was um, Hitler was no less a fascist because he could write a coherent sentence. Um, and so if you you know, if you've mastered uh, prescriptive grammar, um, it doesn't mean you're a better person. It means that you've conquered this skill like whittling a cabinet is an amateur whittler, a morally superior or is a expert whittler more superior morally than an amateur no they've just taken the time to do so and so um yeah i mean the the people people all across the political and social spectrum make digs at non-standard grammatical forms whether but it's ultimately classist um and people do it when someone uses a a form that exists in Af african-american vernacular english but not standard english that they ultimately don't understand as a systematic dialect etc so anyway people adhere really strongly to grammatical rules they take a lot of safety in them but it's even more heated when we're talking about singular they because it comes with this um, with this social justice idea of, of recognizing and validating non-binary identity. And so there are the people that adhere really strongly to grammar, but at the same time support non-binary identity. And so it's up to them to just sort of like catch up. But then there are the people who use the grammatical argument as an excuse when really, you know, they're starting with a conclusion and working backwards to find an argument. And if they don't recognize non-binary non identity or feel the need to validate that with language, then they'll always come up with an excuse not to use it, whatever the grammar rules say. Um, so that's something that comes up a lot. Um, there's also like the idea of labels and how we're seeing the emergence of lots of different labels for different gender and sexuality identities um, in the language. And, you know, uh, sort of like, you know, conservative aunts and uncles at Thanksgiving will be like, what's a gender punk or whatever? Like you kids, like you're just doing this to frustrate me. Um, which if you're a gender punk, you, you probably are. But um, kidding. Um, but uh, yeah. But that's really representative of a world in which it's finally safe to ex to to you know label yourself and thus in a way legitimize yourself with new language and with a new label. Will all of these labels always exist? Maybe, maybe not. There is the potential that one day the world will be so inclusive and so accepting of identities across the spectrum that coming out and labeling yourself will be rendered obsolete. But until then, um, you know, it's kind of a, an interesting thing that, you know, finally our culture is becoming more accepting in different pockets, obviously, you know, labeling yourself as gray gender in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's not a dig at Tulsa. I know nothing about Tulsa. <laughs> Tulsa might be the most b blue progressive state in the world. I, that's not a state city. I'm not sure. But if you're, you know, if you're labeling yourself with this different language throughout our massive country, it will obviously mean different things. But by and large, our culture is becoming more accepting of these different identities and thus the language is following. Um, and so that's something that is coming up a lot as well. It's like the two main things. Yeah, I'm wondering if that has anything to do with a couple of factors. So in the last few years, we saw a landmark study out of the Williams Institute at UCLA. Um, they surveyed 12 to 18 year olds. And what they found was almost 30 percent of these young people are gender nonconforming yeah. or at least perceived as such. And that's just in the state of California. Um, Gallup a few years ago found that millennials are twice as likely to be LGBTQ identified. Uh, and so we're, the numbers of queer and non-binary folks are growing. And I think I'm curious about a couple of things in relation to that. And one of them is this concept that has to do with race, but also has to do with gender. Um, Michael Omi and Howard, why not think about something called a racial anxiety. Like when you look at someone, can you categorize them? What are they? This is why we get these weird questions in social settings. Mm -hmm. What are you? What are you really? Yeah. Right. When someone keeps pressing you um, and, you know, my stock answer is I'm Californian. Yeah. I'm American. And then they say, what are you really? Um, and then my answer is uninterested in this conversation. <laughs> yeah. So when we think about racial anxiety, we can also have a corollary, corollary in gender, right? What is your gender? And I'm curious for you if 
that is also a sense of the pushback. Like, no, we have a categorical system for this. We police our gender. And I remember one of the first times I saw Judith Butler, who wrote Gender Trouble, um, speak. She said, some people just don't want you to fuck with their gender binary, which is fascinating. No, that's exactly it. Who wrote the whole book on gender performativity, right? Um, And linguistic performativity. Yeah. And that word, too. I'm curious about whether or not that has anything to do with this aversion to using they, them, or easier. Oh, absolutely. People crave binaries, right, wrong, black, white. Um, boys uh, line up on the left, girls line up on the right. It's it's very organized that way. Um, people love taxonomy. We, we categorize species. We love it. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there was... Um, uh, a German scientist, who, a German psychologist who studied um, gender and sexuality in the, the mid-1900s. Um, you know his name. What's his name? In the oh, book? goodness. Yep. Oh, Started um, with the J. Magnus Hirschfeld, um, th- who they called the Einstein of sex, who um, created a taxonomy for gender and sexuality identities. There were like 60 different categories that you could fall into. And his whole crusade was to find like a logical, provable, biological reason for these different identities. um, Because if he was able to do that, then he could prove to the police, like the legal system, that these identities should not be punishable by law. Should People shouldn't be thrown in jail because they were gay. Because look, they were biologically designed to be this. Um, and as we learned since Magnus, Hirsf- Magnus Hirschfeld's time, um, th- that it's not that simple. And nearly every human phenomenon is a combination of nature and nurture from intelligence to addiction to certainly gender. Gender is this unbelievably amorphous, complex combination of your body, your performance, your internal sense of who I am, um, your your dress, your how you speak, everything. Um, and, you know, p- we crave the simplest answer. And for a long time, the simplest answer has been male, female, boy, girl. But as our society advances and as research advances, um, the, the, in- the inconvenient truth, if you will, is that that's just human experiences are not that simple. Um, but we want them to be. And it makes us feel unsafe when things are complicated. It's like why we love the idea of God, because it's like God created everything. Um, and it, and that's a very simple answer to a very complicated question. Um, so I think, you know, what is gender? What is sexuality? These are questions that are almost as complicated as how did we all get here? And um, when we're not able to when, when what we've learned our whole life is undone by progressive research, then that makes people pretty upset um, and uncomfortable. And um, singular they is a, a little itty bitty tiny monosyllabic word that represents a lot of those anxieties, I think. So are there moments where grammar policing is effective? And I will admit this is a prejudiced question. Why? Because I am a gender neutral pronoun police person. Yeah. Um, I'm always really excited where folks I didn't necessarily expect, and that's like a byproduct of my own assumptions. I'm always really excited where when folks I don't anticipate using gender neutral pronouns really well do. So like uh-huh. a bowling alley attendant or um, the AT&T salesperson who helped yeah. me recently really impressively was able to use gender neutral pronouns easily. Um, so I am fairly militant about neutral pronouns. I'm curious if there's a moment or if there is a batch of things for you where grammar policing is actually okay. Yeah, I think like that's almost reverse grammar policing because you're encouraging someone to use a non-standard form, um, but it has like these social justice undertones. So like that is important. And that's a totally different thing than encouraging someone to employ the proper usage of well versus good. But I think like if our culture is to evolve to a more gender inclusive place, then that will become the prescriptive rule. And um, there's no reason why being more grammatically grammatically gender flexible shouldn't be as prestigious a, a skill as know, as knowing when to use 
there with an apostrophe, there with an E-I-R, and there and there with an E-R-E. You know, like ling- to be linguistically bendy, to be pronoun bendy should be seen as very prestigious, I think, because it has these more important um, social justice implications. Um, where I think, gra- I mean, I think it's so funny that when it comes to grammar, it's like the one time in our entire lives when it's actually like okay to identify as a genocidal fascist when you're like, I'm a grammar Nazi. Like, I- I'll tell you when to use the Oxford comma. It's like, oh, we're saying Nazi now? Like, Jesus. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, um, yeah, if you're if you're going to, you know, gently grammar police someone about their use of singular they like that's chill. Um, I would probably do that, too, because it has these like bigger implications. You're like choosing to validate and recognize somebody's identity or not. Like it's the same as someone's name when someone tells you if I'm telling someone that my name is Amanda and they're like oh that's too hard or like that doesn't make sense to me I'm gonna call you Bob that would be like incredibly rude or let's make a better parallel if I decide to change my name and now I want my name to be Baba Ganoush that's weird if I want my name to be chrysanthemum and I was just trying to think of like a couple of hard words today. <laughs> or like, you look oh, like a chrysanthemum. That works. Thank you. Yeah. Oh my God. Thank you. I do. I'm going to change it. Next book under chrysanthemum Montel. Um, no, but if I decide to change my name to chrysanthemum, the this linguist Lal Zimmon, who I would call late at night, um, once said that a helpful idea when you're struggling with incorporating gender neutral pronouns into your vocabulary is to think of them like names. You can't tell someone's name unless you ask them. Um, if once they tell you you need to use the name that they say they can change it at any time during the course of their life if they want to or if they feel that it's more validating to do so um and you have to go with it to refuse to do so would be weird and rude even if it doesn't feel comfortable for you and if you mess up by accident a couple times like that's chill if it's genuine um but then you kind of just like have to acclimate um and it's similar to pronouns but um yeah where it starts to get problematic with the grammar snobbery thing is when you're using it to act morally superior um because that's just classist or when you're misinterpreting a non-standard grammatical form that's actually a part of a systematic dialect like african-american vernacular english and saying well that's just bad english um that's not true either, and, that, and that's, like, racist. <laughs> so um, that's when grammar snobbery annoys me. It's also, like, sometimes just a lazy way to distract from the content of someone's statement um, and focus on its delivery or the spelling or the grammar once. I once had a, I once had a very pretentious dude I was going out with have an app on his phone called Grammar Snob, and he would, like, correct my text typos in real time. And I remember once he was, like, I... I misused one of the theirs and he corrected it in his app and then was like as a linguist I would expect you to have better grammar than that or something like that and I was able to like turn right back around and be like well actually a misuse of the word there is an orthographic error a spelling error technically not a grammar error so if you're going to be a pedant and an asshole at least have some accuracy and he was just like oh shoot (laughs) um so yeah I, I dare you but um yeah I mean that's when I think it becomes problematic when you're using it as a more as moral ammunition when you're actually being racist in classes without realizing it and when you're yelling at me via text (laughs) <laughs> I like the latter point the latter point is by far my that's favorite. the most important in terms of moving our culture forward <laughs> don't yell at Amanda via text don't yell at me via text yes. um, so what happens for all of us when we leave this room what does it look like to reclaim the English language what are what are the things we should be doing oh my god oh that's such a wide open question because in the in the book I offer like so many of these sort of serviceable takeaways um, one of my f- I I mean, definitely read it. Um, But I think one of my favorite ones is um, the idea of the reclamation of slurs because um, those are some of the most uh, abusive terms that we hear day in and day out. And um, it's also very contentious because the the path to reclaiming uh, abusive language or a, a gendered slur is, or any kind of slur, is always windy and messy. Um, and there kind of is no such thing as a word being perfectly reclaimed. Um, I think queer is probably the most successful example. The word queer was once, you know, this I'm sure we all know, a purely 
homophobic abusive slur, but has largely been reclaimed by the LGBTQ plus community and academia. And certainly not everybody is comfortable with this word, but linguists also agree that a word doesn't have to be perfectly agreed upon as non-offensive by every speaker in a culture to be considered reclaimed. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, Deborah Cameron, this hero of mine, this linguist at Oxford, she um, she's she's someone who thinks that the word slut deserves to be abolished rather than reclaimed because um, and actually the founder of bitch media, Andy Zeisler, um, is also someone who thought that it was a mistake to name my book word slut, which I thought was so ironic because her media publication has a reclaimed slur in its very title. It is bitch media. But she was like, word slut, how dare you? Um, but, I, you know, and their argument is that it's problematic to have a word for female promiscuity, a special word. Um, man slut obviously doesn't carry the same oppressive, damaging connotations. Um, and also it it uh, implies that a slut is female by default if you have to add man at the beginning of the word. Anyway, um, they think that that's problematic, whether it's in a positive or negative context. But I... But this is subjective stuff and language is always subjective and language change does move from the bottom up and I'm a bit of an optimist and someone who who loves playing with language and there are certainly language forms that I have removed from my vocabulary not because I've self-policed but because I've just decided that I don't need them like you guys. I rarely say that. I say y'all. It is concise. It is flirtatious. Just kidding. It can be though depending on your delivery. Um, I love y'all. Anyway, um, you guys does not have a place in my vocabulary, but slut does because I love the idea of us being able to reclaim once abusive words by only using them in positive contexts. I never use slut and I'm working on never using bitch in a negative context um, and only using them in a positive context like me and my bitches or she's a bad bitch. We, by the way, have hip hop artists like Trina and Rihanna to thank largely for the reclamation of the word bitch. Um, yeah, absolutely. And um, so I find that if I only use slut and bitch in positive context, if I only say I'm a word slut, I love words so much, or I had a very slutty night in a positive way, and I only say me and my bitches are like, she's a bad bitch, then slowly those positive meanings will eclipse the negative ones and the next generation will grow up hearing mostly those and not the negative ones. And that's really the path to reclamation um, as slow as incremental as it may be. So that's just like, one quick tip, you know, an invitation to redefine these words to be compliments rather than um, rather than insults. I think it was Betty White who said, why do they tell people to grow some balls, grow a vagina? Those things can really take a pounding or whatever. <laughs> um, so that's very clever. And um, and I and I love that idea, although, you know, there are there are countless more little little nuggets of advice that people can take away. But that's my favorite. Do you have one? A, a linguistic thing that I would encourage folks to do. Yeah, a language thing or any kind of word of wisdom that people can take away, how to move forward into a more gender-inclusive 2K19 summertime. <laughs> I like that. It's summer. It's Let's summer. Talk about summer language. It's summer. Um, it's time for gender inclusivity. Get on your bikini, go to the beach, and use singular they. <laughs> Uh, so one of, I think, the most pernicious and insidious forms of um, slur has to do with body size. Word. And I'm always really intentional about what, you know, I hear often things like you're a fat liar, things like that. Um, so I try to be as intentional as possible when I hear that or say that. Um, and think about what it means to be really body positive. Um, totally. What kinds of body positive language forms can I use um, instead of kind of falling into alignment with a lot of what's right, out there? Right, because we're so often unconsciously yielding to these standards um, and these stereotypes and prejudices that we consciously really aren't okay with. I also like on the topic of um, paying credit where credit is due to terms um, like bitch and hoe and their reclamation. I just want to make the point that like another thing we can do um, moving forward is like to understand that some our language's best slang, best terms, best grammatical forms um, 
95% of the time, I'm going to wager to say, um, were invented by our most oppressed communities, like queer people and people people of color and the intersection of the two, like ballroom slang, um, words like... Queen. Ber- words like yas, que- yeah. yas and queen and drag and you better work. Um, these were not words invented by Broad City or Twitter. Um, they were invented by queer and trans people of color in 1980s, Harlem, New York, who invented them because they needed a secret code to survive. Um, And so, yeah, that's true of so much of our best um, and most innovative languages was um, we have uh, our most marginalized communities to thank for. Um, So to to co-opt these cool language forms and not politically align with these folks at every turn is not like cool, Um, but I assume that we all do, so it's chill. (laughs) <laughs> but thank you so much, Amanda, oh, for your book you. and thank for the conversation. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.